Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is microphone maker Dave Perlman. But first of all, I'm sure you've all heard about payola, and with good reason, because payola was a big part of music industry life, especially back in the 50s and now it's returning. Just to give you a little bit of background, back in the 50s, some record labels decided that they could influence who was playing what on the radio, and they went and they paid the DJs to promote, in other words, to play their particular singles. And these became hits. And the reason why was way back then, you didn't have a lot of listening options. There weren't a huge number of channels, and for the most part, the DJs never mentioned at all that they were being paid to play something. So ultimately, this was kind of blown up, and as a result, some people went to jail, most notably Alan Freed, who coined the phrase rock and roll to begin with. So from then on, you couldn't do it. Record labels could not directly pay a DJ, and If that did happen, they would have to announce on the air that they were being paid. So it kind of went away for the most part. Now, that being said, there was still a lot of influence peddling going on, and that lasted through the heyday of radio, basically up to about 2000. So here we are in the digital age, and we're pretty far down the road in the digital age at this point, and now we're finding payola is coming back. In fact, now it's being called playola. And it's actually legal this time. One of the reasons why sponsored plays are actually working is because there's lots of listening options. Unlike once upon a time, you only had a few, maybe only one or two in town. Now you have hundreds, thousands of options. So it's really easy to switch a channel. But that being said, all the time, every single time, something is sponsored, something is paid for, like a song. It will mention or you will see on the display that this is sponsored. And it's working. So paying for playing is actually working. And it turns out that actually listeners like this. Listeners prefer listening to a full sponsored song as opposed to listening to a radio style advert, a radio style commercial. And not only that, remember on traditional broadcasting, Whatever is being advertised is going out to everybody that's listening, but when it comes to digital, no matter what platform you're on, it can be targeted to just the people that would probably care most about what's being advertised. So now we're starting to see more and more sponsored songs, and this is on every single platform. The idea is artists are going to spend money anyway. So they might as well spend it, instead of off the platform, spend it on the platform. And whether you think this is a good idea or not, or whether it's ethical or not, it's beginning to happen. The fact of the matter is, if you're alerted that someone is paying for it, it's legal. It's not a problem. And users, listeners, viewers are not opposed to it. So get used to this. There's going to be more and more of it. Now, one of the problems here is whoever has the deepest pockets wins. And who do you think that is? Yeah, it's the major labels. 
So we're going to start to see more and more of that happening. And I think it's going to, I don't want to say it's going to ruin the platforms that we listen to, the platforms that we like, but it's certainly not going to help them. So we'll see who takes that money and who doesn't. I would think that we'll see Spotify and Deezer and the independent music streaming platforms that don't have a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, they'll probably be more likely to take those sponsored plays than, for instance, Apple Music or Google or Amazon, who has deep pockets and music is not an afterthought, but it's not their major business. So anyway, prepare for this. It's a new day in payola. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's an example of a law that's passed with really good intentions that has the opposite effect. And let me give you some background information. First of all, as you know, well, maybe you don't know. I grew up in Pennsylvania in a very small town. Minersville, it was called. 5,000 people in Schuylkill County. And I started playing in clubs when I was 14 years old. Now, back in those days, there were lots of clubs to play and they all had bands. So it was really easy. It's not like today where that's getting rarer and rarer. But all through high school, I was playing at least two nights a week in clubs and making money. And before I was 18, I was playing four nights a week. So I was always in clubs as a minor. That was illegal. But of course, in Schuylkill County, <laughs> the whole joke used to be, if you can see over the bar, you're old enough. So it wasn't an impediment at the time. That being said, clubs have always been a place for musicians to get their live chops together, to play in front of people, and yes, to make a little bit of money on the side as well. And at one point in time, could make a lot of money doing it. Well, it turns out that Pennsylvania just passed a law, Bill 561. And what it says is that minors can legally play in a bar now. As long as they don't get paid, they cannot be compensated. Now, up until this time, a minor can play in a bar if there was some instruction that went along with it. But that being said, now it's totally fine for a minor to play in a club in Pennsylvania. And you might think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, here's the unintended consequences. Venues already try as much as they can to get free entertainment. And we've seen this all over the country with pay to play, where the artist or the band has to buy X number of tickets, and then it's up to them to sell or give them away in order to pack the house. It's not like that everywhere, but it certainly is in Los Angeles and New York and I know Nashville, there's places. Generally speaking, most of the big cities have at least some of this going on. The idea here is that in Pennsylvania, now it actually encourages club owners, venue owners, to have underage entertainment because it doesn't cost them anything. And as a result, you're going to have professional musicians that won't have as much work. And it's not like they have a lot of work already. So you think about this and you think, well, wait a second. This really 
does seem like a good bill and it was done with the best intentions in mind, but you know what? If it puts people out of work and if in fact you don't get paid, (laughs) we all want to get paid for what we do. And yeah, there's a certain amount of getting it together when you're first learning the ropes, so to speak. That being said, everybody should be compensated, especially if you have to play four hours in a club. Anybody that's ever done that knows it can be grueling. Not only that, it's a longer day than that because you're schlepping your gear in and schlepping it out. So it's a really long day or night, and you should be compensated as a result. So the downside of this is, since this is a law in Pennsylvania, will other states adopt the same thing? And if they do, what is that going to mean for professional musicians? So let's keep our fingers crossed. It's tough enough out there the way it is right now. Musicians don't need it any tougher. After years as a touring pedal steel guitarist with everyone from Dan Fogelberg to Pat Boone and Bobby Womack, Dave Perlman opened his Rotund Rascal studio in North Hollywood in 1979. To save money on outside techs, Dave began to do repairs and modifications on classic mics like U47, 67, and AKG C12s. His side business became so successful that Dave closed the studio after 25 years and started Perlman Microphones. He now hand-builds a full line of excellent vintage-style tube mics, including the mostly overlooked Church MGM microphone from the 1950s, the Telefunken 250, and the U47, among others. In the interview, we talked about how he started building mics, the history of the famous Church microphone, finding vintage tubes, the magic of older parts, and much more. I spoke with Dave via phone from his home just outside Los Angeles. How did you get started in the business? Uh, well, you know what? I've always uh, I've always been involved in in music and recording in some way. I've always done that. My dad was uh, a radio guy in the Navy, and when I started, uh, when you know, when the Beatles came out, and I started, I wanted to learn how to play guitar. I was eight and sixty three, and uh, my dad made me, you know, solder my own cables and start to wire up my own speakers and things like that. So I've only ever done stuff in this field. So I've never really had a job, so to speak. You know, I was a musician and I did uh, a lot of major touring in the 70s, like with Dan Fogelberg and Bobby Womack, Everly Brothers, Righteous Brothers, all kinds of weird acts. And then uh, in 79, I opened my first studio and ran a studio until 2005. And uh, the original microphone thing was going, uh, was I wanted to just fill up the good quality tube mics. So I sourced all the parts and uh, started building mics and people would come into my, into my studio to sing and want to buy the mics that I was building. And I was just building them in the, in the tech room in the back of the shop. And I started figuring out that I could make more money and spend less time working building mics than running a recording studio. <laughs> so kind of how that happened. Yeah, but your studio was pretty cool and you had some really great clients. I had a great studio and I had great clients and I had all, tons of vintage gear and it was it was mainly an analog room even though, you know, I had pro tools but you know, one of the things people liked was that I had three two-inch 24-track machines, and I used um, 
I used a half inch 30 IPS machine to mix and I had a, all kinds of all kinds of gear, all kinds of vintage stuff, hundreds of mics. I had one of the largest collections of RCA ribbon mics, so I did a lot of big band jazz and stuff like that. Oh yeah, it was a fun studio, but you know, it's one of those things where you know, you can work 15, 16 hours a day and make a certain amount of money or work two hours a day and make the same money. <laughs> so that, that was a thing. Yeah. No, I'm hip to that. Believe me. You had the studio and what possessed you to get into making your own mics? How did that happen? Well, you know, like I was saying, it's originally was just, I thought, you know, I, when I first getting, I was getting, um, U47s and C12s and stuff and you open them up. I was originally just doing modifications and I would open up a mic and go, man, I can make this. I can do this. And again, it was just really to bring, it was supposed to be a client magnet just to bring people into the studio. And it did. And then I got so busy building the mics that, you know, I just closed up the studio and parted out all the gear and, you know, put the money into this business. And it's been going strong since uh, 2005 now. Wow. What was the first one that you built? Well, uh, the first, the, the original whole idea was to make U47s. So the first mic was called the TM1, which, you know, tube microphone, TM1, and pretty much got as close to the uh, U47 circuit as I possibly could. And that was amazing. I remember building the first one, you know, after like, you know, starting little fires and shocking myself a few times and making huge amounts of noise. When I finally got the first one finished, it was so exciting. And, uh, you know, the, the difference between uh, U47 and these mics, U47 used a tube that required a 55-volt uh, filament. Even they were only... 37 volts but it was a 55 volt rated filament and uh that's the vf14 which are like you know 2500 bucks now if you could find one and um so to use just a regular uh pentode wired like a triode which is what that tube was and with a 6.3 volt filament so it's gonna have to have separate power supply and you know that kind of thing so it's as close as possible to a u47 and that was the first mic I made. And that's also still the best seller. I sell more of those than anything. Now, that being said, you build them yourself, right? Every single one of them I build myself by hand, yeah. I make the capsules, too. I do all of it. I was going to say, I saw your video of you making capsules. That has to be unique. I can't think of anybody else that does that. Oh, there are there are a handful of guys that that actually are doing it in town. Yeah, it's not like it's a lot of guys. Maybe you know there are probably you know maybe ten guys in the country that are doing it now. Maybe more. I don't know. I only know about the guys I know. So ten, fifteen guys, maybe. So you're building them yourself. And I imagine that's really great for quality control on one hand. But but how do you keep the consistency from mic to mic? Well, it's one of the things is, you know, I buy really high quality parts, so I don't really have to worry about that so much. 
And then the, the only, the variables then become the capsule and the tube. Um, so if I'm making the capsules myself and I know exactly what I'm tuning the, the diaphragms and I have the exact spacing. So the capacitance is exactly the same from capsule to capsule. They're pretty close. Every single one of them is really, really close, if not spot on. So it's real easy to make a matched set. Um, what I do is, you know, I'll, I'll lay out all the parts and measure. I have to measure every resistor and capacitor to make sure they're exactly the same. And then it becomes, uh, you know, the measurement of the capsules. And I have to build sometimes four or five different capsules till I can get two that are spot on. And then it becomes the, uh, the tube is the only variable that's left. And I have to go through, you know, a bunch of tubes to find them that are exactly the same. And it's not that big of a deal, really. But it does take a long time, so I have to charge, charge for matching stuff. Yeah, yeah. Where do you source your tubes from? You know, the tubes, I have a lot of friends. You know, since the early 2000s when I was first starting to source parts, and I found a lot of guys in Europe, uh, specifically in Germany, quite a few guys in Germany, that had caches of tubes just sitting in warehouses. And I would buy, like, well, they go, well, if you'll buy 5,000 tubes, you know, I'll give them to you for a buck a piece. Okay. Huh. And I would buy all those tubes. So, you know, I've got, still have a lot of those. And, you know, every once in a while, somebody will be selling like a case of tubes on eBay or something, or somebody will write to me and say, I found, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these tubes. So uh, it's actually not so hard to find them. They're around. Even uh, one of my mics I use, uh, a metal uh, American tube, a 5693, that was real prevalent during uh, World War II and on and used for radar and a bunch of stuff. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these tubes around, so it's it's actually pretty easy to pick them up. Let's talk about the church mic. First of all, can you describe that? Because I don't think a lot of people understand what that is. Sure. It's it's actually, there was a guy named Stanley Church who worked for MGM in the 50s. And MGM was using uh, U-47s and M-49s from, from uh, Neumann on, on a lot of their sound stages. And they were having a hard time getting parts and getting repairs and finding the tubes. And they were dealing with uh, Gotham Audio in New York at the time. And... Uh, what they did was they ordered a bunch of uh, 47 head baskets with M7 capsules, and then they got Stanley Church, uh, an amplifier that would that would take the place of Neumann's U47 amplifier that would use like a readily available tube, which is kind of what I'm doing too. So the the Church mic is is a recreation of of that 50s microphone. So um, one of the things I do, I order uh, original M7s from Berlin with the PVC skin on them. And I really just build the schematic and uh, they're amazing microphones. That's the one that Sir Elton John chose for his last CD. That's also the mic that uh, Al Schmidt just wrote about in his new autobiography. Yeah. And uh, 
many. I've, I've got some uh, church microphone fans. Uh, that one's a little more expensive. It's 3300 bucks, but it's because the parts are expensive. I have to get um, the original capsule, like I said. And also the transformer on that mic. I'm using OEM stuff. I actually got the original company from the 50s, uh, Triad, to go through their records and make the original transformer for me. And as, as, as much as I know, as far as I know, I'm the only one who has that. I'm using the original, the original specified transformer in the mic. So they're sometimes indistinguishable from the original mics. That's why everybody likes it. Well, now, what was special between the church mic and a regular U-47 back in the day when Stanley was doing them? Well, uh, you know, the, the difference, the, the Neumanns, the Neumann mics were, were real U-47s, and they were using the VF-14 tube. And even then, they were expensive. They weren't, you know, a couple of bucks. Like, Stanley built uh, his mics using, originally, the original mics had six AU6s in them. And then he went to a 12AY7 or a 6072 because those were readily available, you know, TV, radio, guitar amp-type tubes that you could, you know, buy in any, in any street corner. I mean, they used to have... Uh, uh, like save-ons and drugstores and things you could go in and there'd be these monolithic tube testing machines and you could buy tubes anywhere in the 50s and 60s. So he was using these tubes that were readily available and then they also didn't have to rely on Neumann to send them bodies and parts. Um, the MGM machine shops, they uh, they were building the, the bodies for the mics. He was building the amplifiers and uh, they just did it all in house. And the only thing they got was the capsules and the heads. And then I think, um, you know, there are so many different versions of the story, but from what I heard is that Gotham got hip to the fact that they buying the heads and the capsules and not buying the rest of the mics and eventually cut them off. So I think there are only about 200 or so of these in existence or that were built and I don't even know how many are in existence. Wow. But I think only a couple hundred were built. Hard to say, depending on to whom you're listening, you know? Yeah. How did you come across the church mic schematics and everything? Were they easy to find? You know, yes and no. Um, pretty much you could Google church schematic and it'll come up on the internet. You can get almost anything on the internet these days. Um, finding a really good copy sometimes can be really hard. And it took me a while to find a super good copy, but, uh, yeah, I have one that's, you know, marked MGM microphone from 1954 or 1955. And it's absolutely clean and beautiful. And, uh, one of the other things too, is I had about five, six, seven of the original mics here too, before I started doing it. Cause I wanted to really make sure that I was getting close to the thing. And I noticed that every single one of the mics that I had that was of that schematic had one changed resistor in the mic and not been corrected on the schematic, seeing the schematic with the changed resistor. So the mics I do build have that changed resistor in it. So I'm not, that's the only thing in the schematic that I've changed. And the only reason I changed it is because that's what Stanley did on his mics. Wow. Very cool. 
a lot of studying and research. Sure. Let's talk about some of the other mics you build then. So you started with the TM1, and then what came after that? The TM1 was uh, followed by the TM2, and the TM1 was very successful, and I started getting calls from people who were saying, the mic is awesome, but we'd like to use it for overheads, but it's too heavy, and it pulls the mic, mic stands over. They said, if you could make a mic like that that was lighter, that would be awesome. So the TM2, essentially a smaller version of the TM1. It's, it's the exact same circuit. I'm using the same capsule. The only, thing, the only thing different on the TM2 right now is it's got a smaller output speed, and it's in a smaller body, and people love them for drum overheads, for room mics, for guitars, for woodwinds, that kind of thing, and even vocals. Uh, it's a great mic. It really is just a smaller version of the TM1. So that was the TM2. Great little mic. And it's a lot less because the parts are... The bodies are less expensive, and I don't have to put as much money out. So, again, part of the part of my mission statement is to try to keep these mics, you know, a super high quality and priced, so that they're available for home guys and project guys and songwriters. And so that was a thing with the with the TM2, nice mic. And after the TM2, I started making the. Uh, the church, and uh, and then the 250. So I'm also making a very faithful reproduction of a Telefunken 250. Same kind of thing. I'm using original schematics and trying to build the mic to sound exactly like the original mic. Um, that one I'm using the capsule built by a guy named Tim Kirk. He makes, I think, the best CK12, C12 capsule right now. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I, uh, I had a, a friend of mine who was a scoring engineer originally commissioned me to build the mic, and he bought all the parts and ended up buying, like, the most expensive diodes and resistors and capacitors that he could find so it would be the most awesome microphone. And we built it, and it didn't really sound that great. And we couldn't figure it out, and I went back and I tested everything, and all the parts were right, and the values were perfect, and... It just like it, it worked. It was just not magic. And, uh, you know, I said, well, let, let me go back and mess with this a little bit. And I tore it apart and I rebuilt the mic with the exact same valued parts, but parts that were available in the 50s and 60s, as opposed to, you know, the super, you know, high tolerance parts that are available now. So I'm using like a lot of carbon stuff and a lot of old old-fashioned capacitors and stuff. And we put that one together, and it was just like the magic was there from using the older parts. So that's what I'm doing on as much as I can on some of the mics is I use uh, older parts. And then, again, same kind of thing. They're really everywhere. You just have to look for them. Mm -hmm. You can find find that type of part. And, you know, you buy hundreds and hundreds of them, and hopefully you won't, go, won't ever run out of them. Um, one of the things, my TM-47, and here's a, a funny thing. I don't know how much of it's in this, but I'll tell you about it, and then you can make the decision whether or not you want to include it. But mm-hmm. um, 
I was, and there was a time when I was taking mics to all the studios and private studios around town. I was taking the TM1, and people were putting it up against their, telling me that they could use my mic to punch in a track that had been done with a U47. Wow. And, well, that's what I said. And I sold a couple to Westlake, and I sold a couple. And then I started running into guys that said, but my clients won't use it because it doesn't look vintage enough. Hmm. And I said, so, so we're, we're talking about cosmetically here. They go, oh, yeah, the mic is amazing, but if we put it up, some of the clients won't, won't want to use it. So I, I asked them, I said, well, if I can make it look vintage and pretty much make the same mic, would you buy it? And they said, oh, sure. And I said, would you be willing to pay more for it? And they said, absolutely. So that's how the TM47 was born. So I, I do charge a little bit more for it. It looks vintage. And then I decided, well, since I'm actually charging a little more for it, I'm going to upgrade the transformer and use a different tube and upgrade the, the a couple of the caps and the mic. So it actually is now an upgraded mic. And, uh, and, People love the way it looks, and it, that's apparently important to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so I understand that you do customization of the mics. Yeah, you know, I try kind of not to. I do a little bit, like if somebody will call and they say, oh, we want this tube in it, or we want to use this capsule, and I, okay, I'll do that. So sometimes a lot of people will say, well, we love the mic, but we want to use like a real U47, you know, K47 capsule. Like, sure, I'll do that. Not a problem. Or they'll want like an EF86, or they'll want an 804, or they want just a slightly different mic. And most of the time I'll accommodate that, but that's kind of rare. People don't really ask that anymore. So I want to keep uh, keep it standard. You know, so if somebody calls up and goes, oh, I have this mic and I need a new tube, you know, it's not going to be some weird esoteric custom build that I made, you know, 15 years ago or something. Is there a really great mic pre combo that you've found? Is there something that seems to just work really well with your microphones? Well, yes and no. Um, one of the things that was happening when I first got, was going, like around about 2005, 2006, 2007, there were a lot of, uh, you know, audio uh, websites where people would, uh, you know, forums. That's the word I'm trying to find. There were a lot of audio forums. And apparently, a lot of people were matching my mic with uh, A-Designs Pacifica mic pre. Mm -hmm. It turns out that uh, the A-Designs pre is, is the A-Designs company is owned by a guy named Peter Montessi in Woodland Hills. Yeah. And we were getting a lot of our uh, parts, especially our output transformers, were being built by the same guy, uh, Cinematic Transformers, and uh, they're now in Simi Valley. So a lot of people were were saying what a you know that combination was amazing, and it's a really great combination. But seriously, any great mic pre is going to be amazing. But a lot of people early on on the forums were matching up my mic with that A Designs Pacifica, and we actually Peter and I got together for a while. And we were selling them as a as a combination deal, 
where you could buy the mic and the pre together and you'd get a certain price a little bit off each one. That was actually pretty successful for a while. Mm -hmm. It's a nice pre. He makes it the one now called the Ventura. Yeah. That I think is an amazing microphone preamp. Are you familiar with it? I am, yes. And I'm familiar with Peter and A yeah. Designs, definitely. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the Ventura I think is is ridiculous. Uh, it's Designed by a guy named Carl Johnson, uh, who's just, he's an audio genius. He's an amazing designer. Um, and this mic pre is loosely based, again, on quad, old quad eight type stuff. And mm -hmm. then Carl designed a, you know, a whole other circuit that goes with it. And it's really an amazing piece of gear. Um, but that, the A-Design stuff is, I think, wonderful. And that's what I, I recommend to people if they buy the A-Designs gear. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Al Schmidt and his book for a second. Al is particular about the microphones he uses, and I know that he's a big U67 fan. So when he mentioned your mic in the book, that's a big deal because really, he, again, yeah. he... he Tends to favor U67s, so that was pretty cool. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm a you know an Al Schmidt fan. You know, he's he's just an amazing guy. And you know, on Facebook, you know, he was advertising that he had his book coming out, and you should pre-order it. So, you know, I pre-ordered the book and got it the day that it came out. I ordered it from Amazon, and it was there like that day. And I thought, well, you know. I'll, I'll take this into the bathroom and read it. And uh, I was just flipping through the pages, and I went, oh, that kind of looked like one of my mics. And I flipped back, and I went, crap, that's my mic. Huh. And, you know, started reading it, and Al, in, in the book, said his three go-to mics for vocals at Capitol. He says the original Frank Sinatra, you know, Telefunken Neumann U47, and he says he's got a, a Bronner that was made for him and my church mic. He goes, those are my top three vocal mics at Capitol. So I was, I was blown away and honored. And, you know, I, I, I wrote to him. I don't remember. I wrote to him or Facebook or something. And I said, man, I had no idea. Thank you so much for mentioning my stuff. And he goes, well, you make great mics. Hmm. Like, oh, okay. Thanks. You know, that's like, praise from the mountain yeah it's, yeah it's high praise indeed that's for sure definitely oh yeah completely blown away yeah and like i said it's huge honor okay so you have a nice catalog of microphones that you're selling is there a mic that you still want to build that you haven't gotten into yet well as a matter of fact i'm almost done with them i've got prototype i'm building a, a c12a hmm. i'm about done with it it's almost perfected. And uh, so I've been buying up tubes and sockets. And again, I'm trying to make it, you know, as, um, as much as the original mic as possible. And I'm using, you know, for this mic again, Tim Campbell's capsule. And the, I had an original Transformers and I took over to Cinemag, Dave Guerin over at Cinemag. And he does his forensic unwinding and calculating what the transformer should be in. So I'm using the, the Cinemag transformers and original tubes and sockets and the Tim Campbell capsule, and it's it's really a great-sounding microphone. So the guys who dug that original C12A-type sound, that's that's where I'm going with that. 
Yeah, you don't see many of those around. I mean, there are clones of all the mics that we all know and love, but a C12A you don't see. Right. And I think it's because of the new Vister, but the new Vister kind of got a bad rap when they tried to put uh, a certain one in the U47 to take the place of the VF14, and it just was not the greatest move mm. that Neumann did. And it gave new Vistas a bad rap, and they're pretty good tubes if they're in the right application. So the tube that was in the C12A, the, the 7586 new Vista, is pretty nice-sounding little tube. And uh, I've kind of amassed a small collection of them here, a few hundred, and uh, with sockets and stuff. Hopefully, in the next few months, I'm going to start making that mic. And the other mic I've got on the board was Jeff Emmerich and I were designing a mic together. And we were going to make a Jeff Emmerich Beetle U47-ish type microphone that he was going to sell at his schools and his seminars. And it was going to be uh, one of my TM47s, but with some modifications to make it a little more versatile. And he and I had agreed on a on a design and had ordered the parts. And then, unfortunately, we lost him before we could finalize the production. And, uh, you know, I have talked to a couple of the guys who are, you know, close to the family. And they said that Jeff was so excited and so happy about this microphone coming out. And they kind of want me to continue with it, but they're waiting for, you know, final word from the family and we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. But if we do it, you know, our deals, the original deal would stand where he and I split, we're splitting the profit on the mic. So, uh, you know, the money would either go to his family or a foundation or a charity, whichever the family decides to do. So that, that would, if they decide to let it go through, we'll also do that. Yeah. That'll but be cool. Right at this time, it's just, it's just kind of sitting on the bench and kind of quit working on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Is there a microphone, a vintage microphone that hasn't been built yet, that hasn't been copied yet, cloned yet? I don't know. You know, Wes Dooley's doing the ribbon mics, and he's just using ribbon mics, and he's recreating all those old, you know, the 47s and that kind of thing, and I think he's got a BK5 out now. They're really amazing. And the other guys are doing, uh, you know, there's their 67s are out there. Everybody's doing all the big mics, the 250s and the 251s. And, yeah, really, you know, all the coveted mics are being recreated now. They're being reproduced. And essentially that's what I'm doing as well. I mean, you know, that that's a... Uh, you know, a marketing thing, nobody's going to want to, you know, be interested so much or as much in something that isn't based on, you know, a coveted old vintage microphone. Yeah. The only one I can think of is a C37, C37A. You know what? Yeah, exactly. I don't know doing that mic. And, you know, I know a lot of guys who just love that mic. And I know a lot of guys who just like, yeah, they go, yeah, it's okay. You know, it was a cathode follower, so it had a kind of a lower output. Guys used them a lot for horns and things like that. Um, great mic. And yes, again, that's a really hard capsule to duplicate. Mm. And I don't know if that's one of the problems or one of the reasons why it hasn't been done. 
but I've tried, uh, you know, working on, on those mics, and there really are a handful of guys that can reskin, you know, refurbish a 37A capsule. It's a weird little beast. Yeah, yeah, that answers that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, and you know what's weird? It's like the original C12 capsules, too. Super, super complicated. And their uh, failure rate, I think, was around 50%, which is why those mics were so expensive and why the AKG isn't making that capsule anymore. They can't because uh-huh. it's, it's crazy. It's just crazy. A lot of parts in them in that capsule. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah. And the ones that are being made now, like Tim Campbell's capsule and also uh, Eric uh, Heisenberg is making uh, a pretty good one now, too, as well. They're, they're based on the design and um, getting as close as possible as they can. And they're amazing, amazing capsules. Mm-hmm. They sound great. Even the Chinese are, are kind of getting close, but not as detailed as... Uh, um, Tim Campbell's and Eric's capsules are. Mm-hmm. I think they, they're way more detailed. This is why I like them. Also, it's also an, a marketing thing, too. You, instead of saying, well, I'm using a Chinese capsule, you say, well, I'm using a Danish capsule, a handmade, you know, Danish capsule. So we, as opposed to the Chinese that make hundreds and hundreds at a time and the quality control there is not that great, I know that when I order capsules from Tim in, in Denmark, that he's making them one at a time, and the quality control is really great. Mm, yeah. And I know I'm going to get a good-sounding capsule. But um, for the TM1, the TM2, and the TM47, I make my own capsules here. So I have the brass drilled for me locally, and uh, I skin them and tune them and, and assemble the capsules here in the shop. Is tuning them like the secret sauce? Is that the thing that really makes a difference? You know, yes and no. I know, I I know personally that there are two or three guys I know where I, I know their frequencies and and I like you know parts of what this guy's doing and parts of what that guy's doing. So I tune mine kind of in the middle between these two or three guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's a, there's a resonance in the capsule and it's also a ratio between high end and low end and there are other factors but yeah it, it will it will change the sound of the mic there are other things involved there too like using paper and oil output capacitors and a whole bunch of other stuff like that too so there there's a little voodoo what's one thing that people don't know or understand about microphones that maybe you do because you build them well, that's a tough question. I mean, most people don't have a clue what's going on inside a microphone. I mean, even, even you know, these names, but uh, there's another famous Beatle engineer that I know and I've worked with who was one of my early guinea pigs. And, uh, you know, and I said, well, I want to make a tube mic like a U47. And he said, oh, there's a tube in a U47? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and this is a guy who's super famous, great engineer, but, you know, at the time, and even a little bit now, uh, guys who were, you know, the so-called balance engineers, the, the guys who were the whizzes behind the board, 
really didn't know anything about the gear. They just knew, oh, that one sounds good, and that mic sounds good in this pre and stuff, but they have no idea what's going on. So that's a tough question, because I think most people really don't have a clue what's happening electronically inside any microphone or preamp or the tape machines or their Pro Tools. Um, so I kind of don't, don't know how I would answer that. Last question then, Dave. You've been in business for yourself for a long time. So what's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? It's the cliched stuff, you know, that that's really true. Uh, they're truisms. You know, get off the couch, get off your ass, <laughs> you know, go to work, get the work done, you know, and put out the best product you can do, you know, and, and, and be honest and help people. You know, originally I went into this to help people and I, I talked to some other guys who go, oh yeah, you know, if somebody needs a new tube, I charge them a hundred bucks or something. And I go, really? Because I just give them away. I give them to people. Like they go, oh, my tube went out. And I go, listen, if you'll pay for the shipping, I'll, I'll throw in a couple of tubes. I'll throw them in the box because I want my gear to be working. I don't want my gear to be sitting on a shelf and having a guy go, well, I didn't have 200 bucks to get it fixed, so we're going to go with something else. It's like, well, I would rather have my gear work all the time. So one of the things I do with my microphones, I tell people, I go, you know, I can't be responsible for how you treat the gear. So I will give you a two-year warranty on the capsule and the tube. I said, but anything else in the microphone, the wiring or anything, I go, as long as I'm breathing, I will fix your stuff for free as long as you pay for the shipping because it's, it's one of those things where there are only a couple of things that can go wrong with the mic. And I built the crap out of them. I, like I said, you know, the wires are, it's all point to point, you know, wiring and stuff. You can smack them on the table and they're still going to work. So I feel very confident in offering people that, uh, that I will fix the mics for free. As long as they pay for the shipping. And I think that's the way to go. You can find out more about Dave and Perlman Microphones at PerlmanMicrophones.com. That's Perlman Microphones, all one word. Perlman is P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N. PerlmanMicrophones.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. To listen to episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOwnerCircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>